A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. Arsenal remain top of the league. I might just open with that in every podcast for the next six weeks because we're on a break. The World Cup is starting this weekend and that will be part of our discussion on today's show. But Arsenal remain top of the league and will do until December 26th and beyond, actually, considering the lead that we've got there. So I don't know that there's any harm in in reminding ourselves of that on uh, an ongoing basis. Before we get into the show, just want to say a big thank you to everybody who bought a Goodly Morning mug. We put them on sale maybe two weeks ago on the Arscast Extra. All the proceeds from these mugs are going to support Great Ormond Street Hospital and Our Ladies Hospital for Sick Children here in Dublin. So far, we have raised over 5,000 euros between those two hospitals. So like 5,000 was split it, obviously, whatever it comes out at. We'll run this until the middle of December, there are thereabouts, and then we will make our, our donation to those two hospitals. So if you want to get a mug, you can do so by following the link in the show notes. Uh, open your podcast app and click the link there, or you can find the link on today's post with this podcast on arsblog.com. I learned um, a couple of lessons this week. One is that when something is selling well on a site like Redbubble, which is the one we're using to, um, to do the mugs, there are people out there who will just take it and rip it off, which has happened, which is, you know, obviously a shitty thing to do when the mug is being sold for charity, But if you see a link for Carscast Extra Goodly Morning Mug, please know that that is not official. Um, I did email the company in question to ask them to stop and to take it down, but you won't be surprised to hear that uh, they haven't replied, and I'm not sure they will. So if you're doing any Googling or whatever, make sure that you get it from the real link, which is either via redbubble.com or via the link in the show notes, you know, as I explained to you a little bit earlier on. The other lesson I learned this week is that if you have a relatively uh, new-slash-modern car, You might want to check and see if you've got a spare wheel, because I got a flat tire this week. I was at a garage. The valve broke as I was filling up, uh, filling up the tires. And I thought, well, this is a pain in the arse. But seeing as I'm at a garage, I'll just, you know, jack up the car, put the spare wheel on and uh, I'll go get this one fixed. Open the boot, lifted up the thing. There's the space for where the spare wheel should be. And there was no spare wheel. And I rang Toyota. It's a Toyota car. I rang the dealers and was like, uh, what the fuck do I do now? I don't have a spare wheel. Why don't I have a spare wheel? And they were like, none of the cars have a spare wheel these days. It's to do with like the hybrid thing and they don't want to use a battery and all that kind of thing. None of them have a spare wheel. So I had to ring the breakdown people, give them where I was. The tow truck came out. Only went out to get dog food. Four hours later and 175 euros later, I I got home. So it's worth checking out because a flat tire while you're in a garage at 10 o'clock in the day is inconvenient, but it's not the end of the world or anything like that. You can you can deal with that a bit. But what if you are driving and you're in the middle of nowhere and you think, ah, fuck, I'll just put my spare tire on and you don't have one. You're in the dark. It's country road. You realize you're in the perfect scenario for a horror movie to take place, and chances are that's what would happen. Horror movie scenarios. Helpful locals who don't turn out to be that helpful at all and actually want to 
burn you alive or something worse? Like make you sit through a Maroon 5 and Phil Collins concert because they've captured them from previous times they broke down and they've kept them alive in a dungeon somewhere. Now they're going to make them perform and you have to listen. So my strong advice is if you think you have a spare tire, just double check that because maybe you don't. And the outcome, as I've explained, could be catastrophic. Right, let's get on with the show. And it is my pleasure to welcome back one of the co-hosts of the Stadio podcast. It's Ryan Hunt. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Andrew. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, I was just saying to you, I think this is going to be a conversation in two parts. Okay. One Arsenal and then one World Cup. So we're going to probably have to delve into some stuff that isn't that fun and enjoyable when we talk about the World Cup. So I feel like we should get started with the fun and enjoyable stuff, because when you look at the league table, yes, it is fun and it's enjoyable. And what Arsenal have done so far this season has been fun and enjoyable. So I've got a few questions for you, but like, you know, I think we all go into a new season um Maybe not all, but like I certainly go into a new season and there's that like optimistic voice in my head that goes, you know, you never know. This could be, this could be our year. I've had that since I was a kid. It's um, often been completely and utterly wrong. More times than not, it's been completely (laughs) and utterly wrong, right? But I have it there and it's in, it's in the back of my head and like, maybe this is it. And you know, if we get off to a good start, you, you never know what might happen, but in terms of your preseason expectations, would it be fair to say that Arsenal have surpassed those? Massively so. Massively so. And I, re- I remember a little bit of backstory. I was supposed to actually go to the preseason that they did at the Adidas camp for Wright's House, did some stuff down there with Gabby Martinelli. And Musa went, and I got COVID two days before. Oh, so no. I couldn't go. Oh, no. And I was heartbroken. And Musa <laughs> said something to me when he got back. He said, they all looked so locked in. And mm. I just thought, oh, maybe this is just, you know, being around an, an elite environment. Maybe every elite environment mm. is like that. And he said, no, there was a really amazing vibe around Gabriel Jesus and how you can just tell he's a bit of a, a level raiser. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And... And then obviously we saw it in the preseason and in the early stages of the season. And even though he's not been scoring goals, I think we've seen it in his performances all season. In addition to Zinchenko as well, I think you can just tell that these are guys who have done it at the, who have won Premier League, mm. you know. And so I think that they've massively surpassed my expectations so far because I'm a big fan of of just incremental progress, I think, with Arsenal because I think it's, it's such a, um, it's been such a, a, I don't want to use the pun, but it has been a bit of an all or nothing fan base, <laughs> if you know what I mean, for all like vibe around it for so long now that I, I just, I was just like, right, let's just a little bit, a little bit better than last season, Champions League, that would be great. And I think some of the football that Arsenal have played, when you actually step back from it, you kind of think, oh, actually it makes sense based on the last couple of years, actually. It makes sense now. All of the moves that we maybe thought at the time were a little bit curveball or the way that certain players were moved on or mm-hmm. certain building blocks were put in place in terms of how Arteta was trying to get Arsenal to play may have seemed really confusing at the time in isolation. And now it feels like that plan makes a lot of sense in hindsight. Sure. I don't know how you think. No, I, I mean... I feel like there's always an element of um, luck is not quite the the right word. You know what I mean? But sometimes pieces come together at the right time with, you know, a lot of planning or strategy, good decisions, all those kinds of things. And we might talk about that in in a moment. But I, I do feel like the groundwork for this has been laid quite some time ago. Like every so often you go on the... Uh, the Arsenal Reddit gunners uh, are gunners and, and someone will have posted a clip. Here is Mikel Arteta talking about, you know, something in October 2020 or like you, <laughs> this was Mikel Arteta three days after he took over. And he's, you know, he's talking about something that you're seeing now, mm. which, you know, over the course of his tenure, 
maybe hasn't always been what you would expect or you you found it hard to see how we would get there based on what was going on at that moment in time, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I know where you're coming from with that. Um, what I think you, also, can well, I just, in, yeah. just to jump in, sorry, I think also a, a part of us, I, I'm not um, critical of anyone who didn't expect this at all because I think that in modern football, very few people are given the tools or the environment to actually p- put into place a plan that Mikel Arteta and, and mm. the club have done, actually. It's very, uh, it's so weird if you think about it now compared to a, just where we were at the beginning of last season where people at Sky, let's say, were saying, I don't really understand their transfer policy, <laughs> even though it was super simple. Now you're talking, people are saying, Chelsea need to do the Arsenal thing. Mm. And it's like, yeah, but this is a club that won the Champions League 18 months ago. So it's a bit like, wow, okay, now people are actually figuring out... I don't know, it's, it's been a while since people have said, oh, maybe actually they should do what Arsenal have done, because usually it's, it's just anything but, please. Yeah, we, you know. we, yeah we've, we've come to a point, actually, where I have some sort of prescribed questions that I was going to put to you, but we've kind of come to a point okay. in the conversation where I think we should address those to an extent. Um. Look, times have been challenging at Arsenal over the last number of years. You know, we've got we've had some success, we've had some failure, we've had some good times, we've had some bad times. And I don't want to say that we had to reach a kind of rock bottom, right? In mm-hmm. order to turn ourselves around, but I think that's also a little bit true that there does come a point where you have to sort of step back, reassess who you are what you're trying to do, what do you want to do, and how the fuck are you going to get there, right? Yeah. But I also think that most football clubs, unless they are mired in some kind of indifference and or corruption, are trying to do the right things, right? They're trying to win football matches all the time. They're trying to uh, gain promotion. They're trying to avoid relegation. They're trying to win a title. They're trying to get into Europe. They're trying to, you know, always better themselves. So every football club is trying to do the right thing for the most part. There are obviously exceptions along the way. But saying it, and doing it are obviously two completely different things. And you have to have good decision-making. You have to have a good plan. You have to have resources. You know, let's not ignore the fact that at Arsenal, a lot of money has been spent on on yeah. very good players, right? We can't ignore that. But at the same time, the ingredients, the the the, the cocktail, if you like, of, of Arsenal right now is a very tasty one because – the decisions are, that are being made are good because the the backing is there because, you know, all of these things, it goes back to what I was saying at the start. Like, you know, you, you have to have these, um, you have to have these things in place and maybe we're lucky that we've got the manager that we've got. Maybe we're lucky um, or for that. Lucky is maybe not the right word, but like does. You need does, luck though. Yeah, like, you do. Think, you yeah. definitely do need luck. But but uh, let me uh, let me try and put it a different way. Like does. I think Mikel Arteta is a hugely talented coach and manager. But, you know, if he's in the wrong club at the wrong time, does it work for him? Is Edu the kind of technical director that, you know, has turned people's opinions around? But could he do it without Mikel Arteta being the man in the hot seat? You know, that kind of thing. And I. I think there are certain ingredients that have just sort of not fallen into place. My main point is that I think the club deserves some credit for where we are because not everything that they've done has been smart or good or sensible. And now we're in this environment where it looks like a lot of the stuff that we're doing is all of those things. And the benefit of it, as it appears so far, is that Arsenal are are top of the table. Yeah, I think... To go back to what you were saying before about how every club wants to do the right thing or does try and do the right thing on the whole, or we assume so, I think the problem that you have is that because the the goal is no longer just to win the league for the top clubs, mm. because just just by pure maths, Champions League qualification is, is the priority if you, especially, I, I wouldn't say it's the priority, but I think it is the, it's the, it's the, it's the first goal that people write down, right? Because... Mm. of the money and everything that we know that goes with it. 
But I think that over the years, you know, six and seven into four just doesn't go. So there have to be teams that lose out. And I think that the problem that you have sometimes with decision-making is that when you're... Uh, use Barcelona as an example, right? Because we, Moose and I have talked about Barcelona quite a lot on, on the stadio and how actually we feel like that they should take a step, an extra step or two back because it might really suck for a couple of years. But after that, it will probably set them up better in the long term mm. to the point where they probably wouldn't have had to sell off a load of stuff down the line like they've had to in the last season or two. But the problem with Barcelona and, and La Liga, for example, is that it is Real Madrid and Barcelona bar the odd time that Atleti break through. Mm. And even with all of the drama around Barcelona this season, they're still top of the league, basically, which is wild. Um, with Arsenal, it was almost like, yeah, fourth was enough, fourth was enough, fourth was enough because of the context of what that Champions League qualification was taking place in. And we needed an eighth, actually. We needed to, we, and I think we needed more than one. You know, I think I think actually a bit of distance from those Champions League years did allow people to just readdress their goals. I think we maybe talked about this the last time I was on or the time before where actually like reevaluating where we were actually at as a football club and like letting go of the past a little bit and being like, yeah, that's great. We can't judge our we we can't judge what we want to do this season based on what we did in 2006 because it's a completely different environment. And I think that the problem that you have sometimes, I know this is a bit of a ramble, but the problem that you have sometimes is when you're a little bit close or you're really close to breaking through or succeeding, I think sometimes that that tempts you into making quick-fire decisions. Short-termism, basically. Short-termism, yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. And I think that Arsenal definitely needed a huge, huge, huge dose of long-term thinking because it needed a complete culture change at the club. Mm. And I think that... You could say that Arsenal were lucky that they were in a position that they were able to do that without really losing much of what like what they were already having because it was like the the worst that Arsenal could get was drop out of Europe for one season and it happened mm. and actually that was pro- in the long run that was probably the best thing that could have happened at the time for the club in the situation it was in because it needed a complete pivot and so yeah I think a bit of luck is involved. And I think a, a lot of stuff has fallen into place, but it's really, really hard to tell how much of that was kind of like, okay, we're going to nudge this domino over or whether that domino just fell on its own. Yeah. And if I'm being, I mean, I'm a lot more balanced on Stadio. It's not an Arsenal podcast, right? But this is an Arsenal podcast. So I don't really give a shit if it was accidental or not. I'm just glad that it happened. And um, that my, my, I don't hear from my dad hardly anymore because things go well. <laughs> I just get a smiley emoji every now and again after Arsenal games and that's it. You know, uh-huh. he's, he's, he's very happy. He's and that's, content. That's fine for me. That's, that's how I mark my success. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, yeah, look, I, I mean, I think there is obviously, even in the, the fairly recent past, have been some short-term decisions. Yeah. But what, what pretty much all of those short-term decisions tell you is that unless you're really lucky, they don't really work out. They don't get you to where you want to go. And they don't keep you there. You know, they mm. they just don't keep you there. And um, the need to build and rebuild and, and lay new foundations for years ahead or for what's to come has, has been obvious. And nobody likes the pain. Nobody likes losing. Nobody likes finishing eight. And, I, you know, I don't want to sort of get into the kind of territory where you – you necessarily excuse that or there's a revisionism to 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 any of that because a club like Arsenal, as Arteta himself has always said, the standards are, they're up here. That's what they should be. But I think there's also a measure of realism needed. You know, you do have to be realistic about how long it takes, um, what you need to do to get there and the painful decisions that you have to make to go, um, you know, to go down that path. Um, and some of them, require you to take a couple of steps back or a step back before you can take two steps forward. So, Yeah, I think also it'd be worth saying that even though Arsenal are doing probably better than any of us expected them to do this season, I don't think it's... Uh, I don't want to put a downer on it, but I think it's... it's We have to make sure that we... What's the word? Don't let anyone off the hook with regards to stuff around the football club just because Arsenal are top of the league. Like, for example... You know, what is it? Eighteen months ago, this this poor Vinay was being willed out and or told told to go and 
yeah, the, the apology league. circuit for the for the Super League stuff, like poor Vinay, you know, and um, and they were. It wasn't a massively happy happy environment around the place, and I think that everything. Like, for example, everything isn't just unbelievable at the football club forever now that Arsenal's top of the league. I think it's 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 kind of like, yeah, they're doing this and they're doing really well, but, you know, that doesn't mean that anyone can half-step at executive levels. Yeah, well, I mean? that's it. I mean, the, the, how many times have we heard or said um, down the years when there's been questions, and rightly so, about the ownership and everything else, Nobody asks any questions when you're top of the league. Yeah, and, and I don't think Arsenal you know, should be asking questions ne- necessarily. No, or, no, I know what you, you mean, know, but, but it's it's it's, it's like, how winning yeah, is the it really helps the salve yeah. for everything else. And look, long yeah. may that last because the more we win, the the happier we all are. Let me ask you this: what what do you like most about this team? That it has a future. That's my favorite thing about it is that I saw this great thing the other day. I forgive me. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Opta posted the something like the five youngest average squads around Europe or something or, or starting 11s for, mm. for league games. And most of them were not doing particularly great in their leagues. And then obviously Arsenal, I think was second or third. And um, in terms of the age, average age and obviously yeah. top of the Premier League. And I was like, that's the thing for me is that if you look at this, <laughs> it feels like for the first time in years, Arsenal have got a really, really young, exciting squad, but actually there's not a lot of noise about anyone leaving either. Mm. It's just everyone seems to be really bought into the project. Um, There seems to be a really, really good group dynamic. There's like, you remember there's a thing that Tony Adams always used to say and the guys on the Tuesday Club always talk about it, when it kicks off, you need seven. And it feels like Arsenal have got seven for the first time in a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? (laughs) And um, and like that backline, I can't remember the last time I looked across an Arsenal backline and just thought, wow, they're, they're all absolute units, you know, maybe apart from when Zinchenko comes in, but still it's like, it's a big squad. It's a dynamic, it's a big like starting 11. It's a dynamic starting 11. It's quite an intimidating starting 11 from a physical point of view and also from a technical point of view. That just mm. feels like a really, really good balance yet there. And overall, it's really young. So I think that's... Yeah, I think that actually, weirdly, is probably the thing that I like the most about it. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that's kind of what I would say too, is that there is there is potential. You know, you look at this and you don't think, well, this is good, but that's probably, it's probably as much as they can ever do. Yeah. You know, I don't think that when I look at this team. I think that there are going to be some um, swings and roundabouts to this season, some ups and downs, as there always are. But, you know, I... I I wrote about this during the week that like we have improved our recruitment, which is great because that's a huge part of why we are where we are. But I think we've also improved the players that we have recruited mm-hmm. almost to a man. You would say that they're better players now in this system, under this manager, in this team, whether it's collective Uh, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats or whatever it is. But I think we are seeing real improvement, especially in young guys who can develop even further. You know, when you look at, you look at Saka, you look at Saliba, you look at Martinelli, they're 21, 21. And you know what? I think as Arsenal fans, because we've had, you know, one or two down the years who have come through even younger than that, right? We've seen Jack Wilshire come through. We've seen Cesc Fabregas come through. I think they almost feel like veterans in that sense to us. You know, 17-year-old Cesc Fabregas doing it in the Community Shield and then playing throughout that season and being unbelievable. And it's sort of, not that it sets a bar, but we kind of go, well, he did it at 17. These guys are 21. They've been around the block, you know. But 21 is still really, really young in the life of a a, a top-class footballer. So the, the potential for these guys to grow and fingers crossed we can keep them all together as long as possible, I think that's what's really, really exciting about this right now is that it feels very much like the start of something, even though we know it's taken us a while to get here, but now it's like it's like we've cycled all the way up a hill 
and we are about to start freewheeling down and feeling the wind in our faces and letting the wind do that that, like that guy in the Tour de France was it the Tour de France that went viral when he did that weird thing where he lifted his legs up over the back of the seat (laughs) and and got into like aerodynamics and just flew past people (laughs) yeah a bit like that a bit like that we'd let the wind flow through our hair if I had any hair left yeah Um, no, I think that's it. And I think what I'm saying, what I was trying to say before is that the, it, I think it was more like a, um, it feels like for the first time, even though they're a really, really young squad, there's no, there's, they're really hard to intimidate. Mm. And, and I think that it, it's, it's been a long time since I've, I've felt like Arsenal have had a, just, they've ticked so many boxes in, in terms of, um, what you need on a football pitch, mm. um, so it's just really exciting. Who has been your favourite player this season so far? Wow. Um, I think Benjamin White, to be honest. <laughs> I think he's been my favourite player this season because I was a little bit worried about him at the start of the season, I have to admit. When when Saliba came back and started playing at centre-back, obviously Tommy Asu was a revelation last season. And... I was a little bit concerned about where where White would fit in. Mm. And he's just completely locked down that right back spot. And um I just I just think from an actual in terms of a um an attribute point of view he's he's kind of a bit of a unicorn. I I can't I can't remember seeing many players that have that wider skill set who are, who also have that physical presence and are also in that position. Um and also, he's just hilarious. He is very funny. I, I love him. Like, <laughs> I, I love him so much. Just, he's, like, genuinely, he makes me laugh a lot. And I, I'm glad because I know that he's doing that to make people laugh. You know? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, like the Odegaard thing the other day with the, just the dink in the ball and the house just like, that's... <laughs> oh, after the goal. Yeah, yeah. 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 Just kicks to do that, in that in that moment as well. It was just, I don't know, little things like that just uh, really crap me up. So, yeah, he's got the perfect balance of of everything. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think. What about you? Who's your, who's been your... I, I think Ben White has been my favourite. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I were to pick the, the, who I think has been the best player this season, I, I wrote about today on the blog. I, I just think Gabriel Jesus has brought something unbelievable yeah, to, to the team. Um, the selflessness, like I feel a little bit sorry for him at this point because he's gone this 11 game streak without a goal and I don't think he deserves it sometimes a striker goes through a you know a a bit of a goal drought we've seen it before they just don't score they don't get the rub of the green but I don't think I've ever seen a player who has deserved the jammy goal that goes in off his arse or whatever it is more than more than Gabriel Jesus um he's hit the post hit the bar a couple of times whatever it is a couple have been just offside but I just think in in terms of what he he brings to the team, like I'm always trying to think about players in a way that I think Mikel Arteta thinks about players. And it's not easy maybe to put yourself in the mind of, Mm. you know, Mikel Arteta and all his pregame bits and pieces and and everything else. But ordinarily, like a striker who's gone 11 games without a goal, people will be saying, that's not, that's a, bit of a problem you know it is it's not great it's you know we're gonna maybe have to do something about this you know maybe part of it is that you know the next alternative isn't quite as surefire as you might like you know it's not like having Mm. uh I don't know. My mind has gone blank, but you know, who did we... Like, like, I don't know, even like Olivier Giroud. Yeah, exactly. Like, if you yeah. had Giroud as your backup to whoever was your, your main striker, you know, it would be maybe a bit easier to, to make that change. But the Chelsea game sort of defined him for me in, yeah. in, in the sense that everyone was worried about Aubameyang. Everybody was like, oh, the former player coming back to score the goal. We all know how it's going to go. Blah, blah, and you sort of resign yourself to it. You, you steal yourself or you prepare yourself for that. But Aubameyang had eight touches in the game. And Gabriel Jesus had 63 touches, which for a center forward is huge. I think only the center halves who pass the ball between themselves quite a bit and Thomas Partey had more touches on the ball. And and for a centre forward who didn't score a goal, who didn't make an assist, to put in that kind of a display 
really told me something about what kind of a guy he is, what kind of a player he is, what kind of a character he is, and why Mikel Arteta wanted him at this football club, because he will put the team before his own goals. And I mean goals in inverted commas, and also literal goals that he is going to score, because he could hang, he could goal hatch, he could do whatever, you know, to increase his chances of getting a goal. But I just think when you have a guy who's leading the line from the front that way, I mean, it's infectious. Like, you'd feel like you were letting the team down if you didn't do as much as he was doing. You know, that kind of way. So that kind of example, I think, is a huge part of why he's at this football club. Yeah, I think as, from a performance point of view, I can't argue with that at all. <laughs> you remember in the All or Nothing when Arteta brings out the light bulb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's just like, actually, if he's going to do that now, he'd just give it to Gabriel Jesus and it would just light up. Yeah. That's how much energy <laughs> that the guy brings to the team. There was like He has this amazing ability to get Arsenal out of really sticky situations as well. Though I can't remember which game it was. It was a home game, not a million, not, not, not a, few, a few weeks ago or so. I can't remember exactly. Mm. Arsenal going through a bit of a patchy minute of it might have even been the Liverpool game actually and there was that period in the first half where Liverpool really started to take control Mm. and Arsenal couldn't really get out and then Jesus just got one uh took a ball with his like on the turn in in Arsenal's half and just broke through two or three players and it was like the relief that that gave you know and the Mm. time that that gave the back four to kind of push up a little bit and gave the 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 whole side just it was it was a I think that's what I think that's why, like you say, any striker that goes that long without a goal, there would be a lot of scrutiny on. But actually, there isn't really any noise around it at all because he is so integral to how Arsenal play mm. that he will start scoring goals. And when he does, that's gonna that's that's again like another super worrying thing for everyone else. I think yeah. that he's he's still he's still such an important player even when he's not scoring goals. I agree. And I think what's really interesting about this team is that, you you know, you could sit four or five of us around a table and have a discussion and everyone could have a different guy who they think has contributed as much, if not more, to the team this season. I think that's a a fantastic um, place to be. Um, Final question on Arsenal before we talk about something else. What are you most looking forward to in the second half of the season? Hmm... That's a tough question, actually. I'm, I'm, well, I'm hoping a little bit of depth added in the January window. Okay. So I'm looking forward to some signings that we haven't even made yet, um, <laughs> because I think I think if Arsenal, this is a really, really, this is such a, such a good opportunity for Arsenal to make a big, big push for the first time in a long, long time. And I know that it's only actually 14 games, not quote unquote top at Christmas yeah yeah uh, I think you and James you and James talking about this the other day actually when most people play 18 games or 19 games at this at, at Christmas or whatever so it's uh, I just yeah I think I think uh, hopefully an actual title push like a, a real push because if Arsenal do make one or two smart, smart signings in January obviously market depending mm. and make a run at it I don't know. I was, I, I'm still, I think we're all still a little bit conditioned to be like, ah, well, it's not going to really happen, you know? Mm. And I think that's in one sense, that's a bit of a shame that the Premier League is now in this position where it's kind of like, even if you're five points clear after a certain amount of games, it's still, no, 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 no it's not going to happen because yeah. of how strong Man City are financially and strength in depth and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I think I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully a real, real push and, hopefully maintaining this form Mm. and do you know what in a weird way i'm kind of looking forward to and it's just more of a gut feeling like hopefully the like the poor results which there will be some right them being compartmentalized a little bit because it feels like the defeat against manchester united for example it was kind of like right done next one and i think we benefited a little bit from having a break after that because the game, the next game got postponed, I think. But even like the draw against Southampton, it seemed that everyone stayed pretty calm. Mm. And that, 
I don't know, just from a personal point of view, that's quite nice to see that people are like, okay, I mean, I, I think that comes from from good performances again or being top of the league. You 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 kind of look at each of those games in isolation. But but yeah, I just think it, hopefully a little bit more of a smoother second part of the season. And at the very least, qualifying for the Champions League because I think even if Arsenal don't win the league, I think the current pace that they've been on, or even if they really, really have a severe dip in form mm. we should be qualifying for the Champions League now from this position yeah I would agree I agree and I you know I'm looking forward maybe to getting Emile Smith Roback um, yeah you know a really really exciting player who thankfully we haven't missed a great deal oh, yeah. but in the second half of the season like you say get Smith Roback get a couple of players in in January who they might be, I don't know. Um, there's all the talk of Mudrick and, you know. I think the price tag Shakhtar are looking for would make that unlikely, but... Big respect to Arsenal fans doing the work already, though, by, yeah. you know... They, I, was, I was saying, actually, that there was nothing that mobilizes online quite like the Arsenal fan base. No, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. He's like, I, yeah, I get 500 DMs a day from Arsenal fans going, come to the club, come to the club, come to the club. But, I, you know, I think... I, I, I think January will be interesting because there was a sense that even if people, and I think I, you know, I said it maybe last January, we didn't, we took a gamble by not bringing anyone in and it sort of backfired in the context of last season because we, we just didn't have the depth to get over the line. Yeah. But I also think in the back of people's minds, there was this, understanding that you know one of those signings at least was so important that we had to get the right player the number nine yeah. the new center forward when Lacazette was leaving when Aubameyang was, we had to get the right player so I think that was in the back of people's minds this time around I think maybe there's a little more leeway for creativity is not quite the right word but I, I don't think it's as necessary. Look, you always want to get the right player, right? You want to get the right player at the right price and all that kind of stuff. But it's not quite so critical that you can't go down your list a little bit, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. And the other thing, I, you know, going back to what the, the management and what Mikel Arteta and Edu and those have done is that I think they have generated a certain level of, um, what's the word, where you build goodwill. Right. So the decisions that they've made in the transfer market have been such that when it comes to January, I'm kind of there going, well, what, what they decide in terms of the players we bring in. I'm not saying don't bring players in. I'm saying the players that they do bring in, if it's not the guy that everyone is laser focused on, if it's not Mudrick, you know, who now everyone is like, oh, we love this guy. He's I've done an interview with Zinchenko's wife. He's got only Jesus on the side of his neck, which, you know, I think that's what it means. Anyway, um, you know, all of these things that people are now invested in, if it's someone else, I think the the people making that decision deserve the the trust um, of the fans to make that decision that they, the you know, the player that they want. Yeah, I think Arsenal have moved into quite a nice habit of signing people who maybe aren't, you know, like hype signings. And sure. Actually, they're just the right signings. And I've I've got a feeling that what Arsenal have started to do now is to look outside of the obvious, and mm. that's been quite interesting. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think that their transfer record over the last couple of seasons has been pretty good. And I think surprisingly so, based on some of the stuff that was going on before that. So, yeah, goodwill, definitely. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think, for example, the person that they will probably get in if they will get someone in is, is someone that we haven't even really considered. Yeah, I think. I tend to agree. I tend yeah. to agree. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Right. Let's talk World Cup because it is starting this weekend. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a difficult discussion to have in a way because there are so many issues regarding this World Cup, where it's being held, how it was, uh, how it came to be held there. Um, <clears throat> that's not me getting emotional. That is a frog in my throat. I'm... I know there's a lot of conflict. I know from talking to people, I know from talking to my friends and and talking to people, you know, online, on Arsblog, like it ranges from, I'm not going to watch this because I'm taking a moral stand against it. I don't agree with, you know, all of the things that we, we, we know to like, I mean, I'm aware of those. But I'm just one man. Why should I deny myself the the joy of a football tournament that I've watched my whole life? It's a shame, isn't it, that there is such conflict around um, something like this. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about the tournament when you think about it as a whole, as a thing, rather than just football? Um, I mean, I think it's... I would. I'd add at the beginning of this that I think my, I knew, for example, that I had to cover it for work. So mm. there was never really, even, even if I, uh, let's say aren't ex, I'm not ex- as excited about previous, about this as I have been about previous world cups. I kind of knew that I was going to have to cover it anyway. So I think it made the decision-making a little bit easier. Also, I just think Musa and I have always done stuff on Stadio through where, where we've talked about difficult stuff in football. Mm. Um, you know, after the Champions League final, the first half of the podcast was about the stuff that happened before the game and police brutality and, sure. you know, governing of football games and stuff. So before that was even before we talked about the game. So we kind of did, we, we've just done our Stadio World Cup preview that's gone up now. Um, and we did a similar thing. We just asked each other how we were feeling and it was very much like, yeah, I feel okay. If Musa said something great where he feels like it's going to be just a, for him, it's just feels more like a, just a collection of games as opposed to that magical uh, mm. experience or event that you sometimes feel before a World Cup. And I think for him, he said the, a similar thing about the Russian World Cup, to be fair. Um, that was, a, I'd only just started dipping my toe into working in football then. So I wasn't as ingrained in it as I am now. But I think that for me, it's, I think it's a shame that this one, not this one, how do I phrase it? I've got, I'm going to think about how I say this very carefully. I think, for example, I think this is, uh, I don't know what kind of turning point it will be, but this feels like a moment in football history. And I think that there will be, you know, a before this World Cup and an after this World Cup in a sense that I cannot remember a football event where the off the field stuff has been so front and center in mainstream coverage. Mm. It wasn't in Russia. And I think there are loads of reasons why it is more so this time around. And I think, I think one of those is just the fact that that kind of discourse is brought up more more people talk about the the off the field stuff in football and are, and are aware of the off the field stuff in football now that, than than maybe they have been before. Terms like sports washing, I think, are more common mm. now. You know, even my dad is talking about stuff like sports washing. You know, so it's it's it's. I think some people are having or more used to having those kind of discussions around football, um, and uh, I feel as though this has kind of been an accumulation of everything that football has been gearing towards for like the last however long. Yeah. I mean, that's, I was, you know, I was going to ask, are we sort of naive to think that it could or should be different? Um, You know, I I mean, we all know, 
Like there are moral compromises that we have to make as as football fans and have done to various extents, not everybody, but like a lot of people, you know, uh, the ironic referencing of the Champions League is the Gazprom. And then mm. what did the Gazprom do? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. You know, th- those kinds of things. Um, but, I, you know, I agree with you in the sense that I think it is a real positive that m- more is being said and so much of the coverage of this World Cup is being framed around some of the issues, you know, and, and I don't know if you've come to the end of the FIFA documentary on, on Netflix. I have, yeah. I, yeah. I've so watched the last one last night and it's astonishing in the sense that they demonstrate that throughout the the entire history of modern FIFA, there has been corruption. Decision-making has been corrupted. People have been corrupted. The game itself has been corrupted. Um, And literally nobody, not a Mm. single person, in that documentary sort of says, it's a fair cop, Gov, you got me. Like, no, nobody. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it comes to the end and there's a, you know, a scene with Seth Blatter at the end. And it's it's sort of like, I mean, it's astonishing what he says at the end of it, because the whole program, look, it's it's sort of normalized. I, I get how they came to think of themselves as these sort of i think at one point he's referred to um by i can't remember the name of the woman she was brought in to sort of Mm. um do the governance or to reframe the governance at fifa after you know some scandal maybe it was jack warner or whatever it was and she's brought in to sort of uh re reshape the governance of fifa the ethics committee all that kind of stuff and she ends up calling the whole thing like a complete whitewash um just a pr stunt and refers to bladder as a monarch she didn't realize what a monarch he was and within that you have to accept that like i'm sorry but like monarchs don't understand or don't think the rules of normal life apply to them because the way they live they don't actually apply to Mm -hmm. them in a way but it's just an amazing thing that this organization has this tournament which is so embedded in the in the hearts of football fans across the world and they have used it to get to a point where we are now and i i i I feel like for football fans it's a shame and you think obviously about the people who have lost their lives to build this tournament you know the figures are hard to verify right human Mm -hmm. rights watch amnesty international Various reporting will tell you that thousands of people have died since Qatar was awarded this World Cup. Not all of them were involved in football-related activities, but when you are a country that has no infrastructure, like they did not have the infrastructure in terms of stadiums or hotels or, you know, all these things to host the World Cup. So all of those deaths are connected to the decision to give Qatar, the World Cup. Qatar, their executive committee say, well, only three people died. And it's very much okay. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, And, you know, I find it hard to frame this tournament in a way which makes sense to me because people have died for our entertainment. And it's really, I mean... I'm just saying it out loud now, and it's just appalling, isn't it? You know that. I mean, it, it, I think it is, and I think the one thing I would say is that, um, um, I think how to how to say this. I think that uh, starting with two points, like the, the the use of the World Cup in terms of validating regimes that we might feel are problematic is, you know, goes back almost a century. Um, and there's a really the great thing about this FIFA documentary is that it actually puts that into focus, which I think is yeah. a really important thing to do. You know, Argentina '78, um, and the coverage around that World Cup actually 
talks of boycotts. I'm, I think Miguel Delaney posted some snippets of some newspaper cuttings from around the time where the BBC was talking about boycotting the first game or something like that, and maybe ITV as well. And I think that the the thing is, though, for us, I think that it's, or as fans, I'm not sure whether it's now just as, I don't know, society has evolved or changed or we've become a more globalized world or a more connected world with technology and we're just more aware of this kind of stuff. But I feel that fans are confronted with this reality a lot more than they ever have been before on the whole. And I think that can raise some really difficult decisions. And I think what I would say is that, and I don't want to preach to anyone here by any means, especially not on my own show, but I think that have conversations with people and don't tell them how to feel. Actually, I think, I think like, and I, I mean that in the sense of like explore how you feel with your friends or your family who you watch football with, because mm. I think it's a really, you know, like not everyone is paid to talk about football for a living. Right. And therefore I, believe and it's in the approach that Musa and I've taken with Stadio and to be honest I learned a lot from Musa about this because we were friends before I started doing football stuff and he has always covered stuff like this he's 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 written about politics as well as yeah. football and and he did for the for the for the Russia World Cup he he did the newsletter for the New York Times and he was very front and center with some political stuff around it and has always um like balance the two and the relationships of of or how football fits within wider the wider world but i think for a lot of people that they're, they're having conversations like this for the first time and it can be fucking jarring especially in a time where a lot of people are really struggling to make ends meet every the cost of everything is flying through the roof mm. people are being put under so much pressure and the thing that they usually look to for escapism is also kind of bashing them over the head as well yeah and if we're going to get real and we're going to strip it down to a bare human thing that is such a fucking shame however i feel that like you wouldn't our, do own, any- our own stance on it just to kind of finish i know i'm a little rambling no, a bit no, but okay. I, I just did a podcast on this earlier so my brain is still a little bit fried from it but like for example moose and i said that we would do we, we we've kind of spoke quite a lot about those kind of issues on the podcast anyway and the awarding of the world cup and and where it was taking place and then we will talk about the football because that is essentially our job whilst also talk not just pushing aside the issues through the world cup because i do think and i I don't i hope i'm wrong but i've got i have this like feeling that it's not just going to be about the football actually i think there is uh i don't know whether it's a protest or something happens i've just got a feeling that something is going to happen within this world cup but we have to deal with that and i also have known i know a lot of people who have decided that they can't watch any of it and i'm like and i've i would never in a million years dream of trying to convince them otherwise no, because sorry. at the end of the day if it is your hobby and your hobby isn't making you happy anymore don't do it actually mm. you know like for me unfortunately it's a hobby that is now a job unfortunately fortunately, fortunately. Freudian slip for the world cup you're very but, very lucky to do it like i am yeah exactly super super lucky but also it kind of it, at times like this where you're like you know Oh, fuck man like I actually don't want to fucking talk about this oh, I not want to talk about it but like it's easier you know, I, to just sort of turn the other way and just say there's a football tournament on I love football I'm going to watch football right yeah yeah, yeah. I mean I, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable just doing it that way because no 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 but I, done it. but I would lo- I think that's the thing that we should all actually strive for and going back to your point when you said about naivety I don't think it's naive I think it's I think that I don't think and a lot of people might roll their eyes at this, so apologies, but I don't think that we should ever stop striving to make things better. And actually, <laughs> I, and know, I, I know there are people out there whose who's, uh, raison d'etre is to do the exact opposite, who live their lives to ensure that things are not better for, for many people. But I don't know how any right-minded person could disagree with the idea that we should, from, you know, personal level, not, you know, 
make things better for as many people as we can, yeah? And I think we try and do that in however we can do it. You know, a common conversation that I have with people is, is they feel like helpless. How can they do it? And I was like, well, look at what happened with the Super League. Use that as an example. Like your voice as a fan, like I've never seen English fans kind of like use their voice in the modern era like they did do with the Super League protests. And all of a sudden clubs were listening to them. And I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of clubs have tried to be on their best behaviour in the Premier League after that. And let's just look at it from a cynical Arsenal lens. You know, um, the connection with the fans, the fans, the connection with the fans. The, it's, the fans have, have been given a lot of props from the club over the last year or so. Yeah. And the cynic in me is like, well, is that because you know how far you fucked it with the Super League stuff and you have got a massive damage limitation campaign <laughs> to do? But actually, it doesn't really matter. Use the voice. Use the voice because the club is actually listening. And I think that extends out into to anything wider. For example, like, we've seen with, we've seen recently that actually authorities within football and clubs and federations, they actually are, they're, they're looking and they're listening. And I think when the thing that has happened before is that they've banked on not enough people giving a shit for things to change. Yeah. And I think that if you, if you want things to change within football, you can always help no matter how small that is. I think I, 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 I believe so, or you can be the beginning of the chain or whatever it sure. is, you know, um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe people will massively disagree, but I think it's. I just just to sort of pick up on that, I think what's what we've seen is that you have to make them listen. You, yeah. you know, fans have to make them listen. Mm. Super League thing, like fans were pushed to a point where they just said, "Fuck no, that's it, that's yeah. enough." And I do feel, and I hope, you know, that this World Cup is that to a lot of fans, because. The reason people aren't going to watch it if they decide not to watch it isn't because they don't love football. They don't care about the game. It's because they can't stomach what the game is being used for, I think. Mm. And, you know, I like what the German uh, Football Association did during the week. You know, they opposed yeah. the re-election of Gianni Infantino, who um, unfortunately has been, uh, I think, just been re-elected because there was nobody else, uh, head of FIFA for the next four years. But they called for a compensation scheme for migrant yeah. workers um, from FIFA, from Qatar. And if the German Football Association can do it, then I think... Other football associations can do it. I think fans can use their voice in a positive way to say nobody should die to make a World Cup happen. Accidents happen. Of course, we all know that. But you can't put people in positions where their life is in peril because a football tournament needs to happen for reasons that we all understand. We know why... Russia wanted it. We know why Qatar wanted it. We know why all countries want it. They, they, all, they all have their own reasons, whether it's sports washing, whether it's commercial gain, whether it's sort of furthering agendas, all that kind of stuff. We know. We all know. We all understand. So it, it's it's a tough one to reconcile. I really do find it I, difficult. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to be honest, I think I, again, like I would echo before, I think that there are people who are paid to cover the sport whose job it is to hold the sport to account at a certain level. And I think that Musa um, said something great on, on Stadio where he said, actually, this amount of scrutiny is the right amount of scrutiny. And it's the, the, it's, it's the amount, it's the level of scrutiny that actually the previous tournament should have been held to as well. Mm. And I And I think that a lot of people in, you know, bigger media institutions or whatever, I think maybe realize they dropped the ball a little bit on the last one. Mm. Um, and, but, but then again, you know, we're also, I think, I think it's, I get a lot of people kind of saying, well, well then what about this and what about this and what about what? this? And I think that's, that's, that's also valid, but it's, it doesn't mean that the, the current thing that you're focusing on is doesn't need attention. Sure. And then, because like I say, I think so many people have, have, you know, how many times have we heard keep, keep politics out of sport over the last few years? And I think what people are starting to realize now 
that sounds disrespectful and I don't mean that, but I mean that, mm. like I said, about the, the, the off the field stuff being so prevalent in mainstream discourse, I think sports have always been used for political, for political means and mm. politics and sports have always mixed. And I think that even the most casual of fans who maybe really don't delve into the off the field stuff are starting to actually see quite how close those two intertwine. Sure. And I think that can be super jarring. Um, and therefore I have a lot of sympathy for people who, who are really struggling with what to do at the moment, because if I wasn't doing it for, for a living, I'm honestly not sure what, what I would do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, there is always an element of what about and that's not to be pejorative about it. You know, you can say, I disagree with this, or this is a terrible thing. And somebody can say, well, what about this thing that might be vaguely or slightly connected to it? And that's, you know, a, a perfectly reasonable point of view because people have different, you know, different uh, perspectives on things. But there is an element of, you know, that classic, um, you know, the internet meme where somebody says, we should improve society somewhat. And this guy pops up. And goes, but you also participate in society, huh? It's like you can't yeah. win. You can't win. And there's going to be an element of people with whom you can't win. But look, it's been um, it's been a great discussion. So thank you for having. Me. I know it's not an easy one. Who, who just very quickly, uh, if it doesn't come across as too jarring, from a football perspective, who do you think is going to be the the team of the tournament? Um, well, I, I yeah, I mean. <laughs> Weirdly, I, I found it too close to call when we were doing our predictions because I think it's the, from a football point of view and this is, I think, again, what is a real shame about this tournament from a purely football point of view, it's probably the hardest to call that it has been for a long time. Do you think, I mean, do you think it, that's from a, a technical perspective because there is a there are a lot of good teams or a lot of good yep. players and I think from a footballing perspective, um, having already discussed what we've discussed, I think what's so interesting about this tournament is that we are going to see players in peak condition. Yeah. Normally, we get a World Cup where players have played a full season. The best players in the world have played 60, 65 games because they've been in Europe and all that. Kind of, and they've played internationals. And then they've got two weeks off. And, they're, you know, and then they go for a training um, camp and they you know, hook up with their national team. But there's an element of sort of fatigue, yeah. I think. And this time around... All the best players are coming in in like tip-top condition, and I, I I do think that's going to be a very interesting aspect to this this particular tournament. Whether yeah, it's agree, a, yeah. an equalisation, I'm not sure, but it is it is definitely something to consider. Yeah, and I think also just each each major force, let's say, uh, or favourites for the tournament has a maybe a piece or two missing. Um. And I think that makes it really interesting. Mm. So, I mean, I, I genuinely think maybe any one of four or even five teams could win the tournament and it wouldn't be a huge shock, which sure. from a football point of view is, is obviously great. After, you know, after, after everything we just talked about. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> look, we're only human. We're only people yeah, at sure. the end of the day. So look, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, I've taken up far too much of your time, but I've enjoyed it. So as me. always, Ryan, thanks a million. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed to Ryan. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Ryan Hun, at Ryan Hun. And Ryan, of course, is the co-host of Stadio, a football podcast, which you can get wherever you get podcasts and, of course, via Ringer FC. Right. I reckon I'm going to leave it there for this particular episode. Plenty for you to get your teeth into, I'm sure. Hope you enjoyed the show. The World Cup will loom large over everything, of course, uh, over the next few weeks. That is the football that we've got. I know, I really do know what a divisive issue it is for many people. Um, but we'll talk about it here on the podcast with James and uh, on the Arscast. And we'll do maybe a few bits and pieces for our Patreon members as well during the week. Keep an ear out for that. If you're not going to watch it, if you're not taking part, that's something I completely understand and fully respect. So James and I will be here. Actually, I don't know when we'll be here. I know that we will be, but I don't know when. Could be Sunday or it could even be Monday evening. I'm not 100% sure, but are, are England not playing on Monday? 
Uh, England. Who are they playing? Iran? They are playing Iran, but it's happening at one o'clock in the day on Monday. So maybe it'll be Monday evening. I'm, I'm not sure. Anyway, keep an eye on all the social media bits and bobs and what have you. We will uh, we'll fill you in on the schedule then. As I said, thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here and for listening. It's hugely appreciated. Have a great weekend, whatever you get up to, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. In an explosive interview this week on a channel that nobody knows how to get, Cristiano Ronaldo tells Piers Morgan the sordid truth about Gary Neville. Yeah, I mean, that's it. How could he not know what Arsenal's transfer policy was? It's so obvious. Yes, I said to him many times in the dressing room. What is this? This is not a mustache. You, you have to shave this. It's making me very uneasy. And I was like, what? You, you have a brother? There's two of you? That's when I decided to go to Real Madrid. Join literally tens of other people who will be watching this interview live on GB Talkie Talkie Talk Talk TV. Uh...